Thank you for joining us here at Brave Church. We hope our teaching inspires you. For more information about gathering times, events, and other resources, visit brave.church. Here's this week's talk. Hey everybody, I'm Darren. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome, glad you're here. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about uh, some of the most exciting verses about marriage ever written in the Bible. Uh, You may not be married, I get that. You may be divorced, recently divorced, or yet to embark on the great adventure of marriage. But whatever your status is, uh, you're going to want to learn a lot about this topic. In fact, in your programs, we have program notes, uh, and you'll want to take notes along as we talk. And then also our ushers have them along the side. Just lift your hand up if you didn't get one, and they'll run one right to you. About every other chair, there's a pin in the back there of the chairs, and uh, we'll get started. So Ephesians uh, chapter 5, verse 21, it says, uh, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Anybody else want to teach this this morning? I'm I'm kind of not feeling well right now. (laughs) Woo! All right. Love it. That's great. All right. Verse 25. Uh, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Amen? Amen? And gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. At Brave, uh, we, if you're just joining us, we teach through the Bible. And so we've been in a series studying through the book of Ephesians. And today we happen to be in chapter 5. And the Bible is the written word of God. And whether it happens to be controversial or not, we have to digest it. Uh, we have to understand it. We have to be brave while we seek to understand how God's word applies to my life today. So let's dive in. Verse 22 says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. What does that mean? And is there any difference between the roles or obligations of a husband and wife in marriage? Is, is there an authority structure? Now, before we get into what this means, it's important to kind of take a 30,000-foot level at this, look at this, and important to note that Christianity, depending on the culture it's being lived in, it can be perceived to be radically liberal or horribly conservative. For example, in communist countries, the church has always been uh, considered to be uh, radical and liberal because the church has always said that the state, the government, is not the final authority on morals or values. God is. But in America, very oftentimes, Christianity looks reactionary and conservative or out of touch because the church challenges the idea 
that the individual is the final authority on moral values. We believe that God determines what is true and what is moral. That's what makes the teachings of Jesus sometimes look right wing to the left and left wing to the right. And that's the way it ought to be because biblical truth doesn't come from the left or the right. It's from above. It doesn't arise out of human conventional wisdom or politics. It comes from above, from a a loving father who does know what's best for us, what is healthy for us, and what is life-giving for us. So what Paul teaches about women in many cultures and societies is considered horribly restrictive. For example, Paul originally taught about the roles of men and women in an Asian society. That was the culture. That was the context. And that's why when you go to 1 Corinthians, like let's say 1 Corinthians 11, and Paul says, when you pray and speak in the church, make sure that your head is covered with a veil. He's speaking to married women in an era and a culture when a woman was married She was completely veiled and her head was covered. When I taught in Pakistan, uh, the women's heads and faces were completely covered. All you could see was their eyes. In Eastern Asia, a woman's head covered showed to all the other people in the community that she belonged totally to her husband. The idea that a married woman would not wear a veil in public worship would have been really radical and offensive in that culture, which is why Paul says, women, just remember, if it is a disgrace for you not to wear a veil, then you should wear a veil. See the balance of truth and application. Wear your veil, cover your head, because it's culturally the appropriate signal to the world around you that you have, you have not thrown off your commitment to your husband. You are a married woman. In America, it used to be that wearing a hat indoors was a lack of manners. Culturally now, uh, that's changed in a lot of settings. So today, many people who read 1 Corinthians chapters 11 through 14 might think, you know, Paul was this incredibly oppressive towards women, but that's a misunderstanding of both the context and the culture. The truth of God's word doesn't arise out of one side or the other side. Truth never comes from the left, and truth never comes from the right. Jesus said, I am the truth. Truth is a person. Truth is who God is. So being male and being a female are overlapping, but they have distinguishable ways of being human. They're not identical, therefore they have different roles. There are distinct obligations, gifts, and callings that belong to women and belong to men. And so I'd like to invite you to consider this. If I'm willing to be brave enough to dig deep with you into this topic, will you be brave enough to listen all the way through with an open heart? Because you may be surprised where this talk lands. The odds are high that you may at different points think you know where I'm going with this, but you really don't, okay? So this passage, here's what we're going to draw out of it. The passage teaches us three things. One, there are roles. Two, why there are roles. And three, what are the roles? So number one, write this in your notes, there are roles. You can see this just by the way the Scripture reads. It's really clear. It doesn't tell the wives to love their husbands. It tells wives to respect their husbands. It doesn't tell the husbands to respect their wives. It says husbands... Love your wives. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church 
without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Husbands are to love their wives just as Christ loved the church. Why would Paul lay out these very specific kinds of directions? The answer is because we do have different gifts and roles. First, there's a notable difference in just being male and female that extends beyond just the physical. Being a male or a female goes beyond your biology into your soul. The physical act of sex has more ramifications than just the physical. Uh, There is a beautiful picture here in the way that a wife receives her husband emotionally and relationally just as she receives him physically. Everybody intuitively knows this, and yet many in our culture do not want to acknowledge this. And as soon as people start to define men and define women, it quickly digresses to stereotyping. And yet the Bible says there are roles, and I'll try to show you that they go way far beyond stereotypes. In fact, research shows us what the Bible has said all along, that there are some general ways in which men and women are very different. If you study child psychology, you'll, you'll, it's just a fascinating subject, and they've done a lot of research on this. For example, little boy babies, when they come up to an obstacle, they tend to push it over. Girl babies, when they come up to an obstacle, they just go around it. A six-month-old, when a girl baby hears jazz music, her heart beats faster. Boy babies just ignore it. (laughs) Girl babies are more verbally oriented. They have far greater skills verbally than little boys do, and they're generally more articulate. In my opinion, that does not change. But anyway... Uh, Little boys are more noise-oriented, and researchers, they actually hid microphones in children's rooms, and they recorded the noise that that they make, and they found that the little girl's noises were all 100% verbal words. So they're in their room, and, hi, Barbie, how are you? And they're talking to their dolls, and they're having this whole conversation in the room. They put a microphone in little boys' rooms, and all they heard was noises, you know, and all these different sounds. And we we all know that that doesn't change as little boys get older, right? (laughs) Scientifically proven fact, men are mono-minded. They get one thing on their mind at a time. They tend to only think about whatever's in front of them. So when, when a man goes to work, for example, he's completely consumed about whatever he's doing, whether it's programming or whatever his job or occupation is, he's focused in on that. And then when the man and the woman come together, whatever their day's been, at the end of the day, if the wife says, you know, did you think about me today? He gets this blank look on his face like, I am so trapped Like, I don't want to lie to her, but he didn't think about you at all. Because he has to focus on one thing at a time. You know, like, you can drive down the road, and you can either have your husband drive you safely to a location, right? Or you can try to have a conversation, but he can't do both. So you've got to decide which one you want, all right? Because that's literally the way, the way a man's brain is wired. However, a woman, for example, watch them. They're amazing. They can talk on a phone. They can correct the kids. They can keep dinner going. They can run a business, a large business. They can clean a house, and they can talk all at the same time. It's no problem because she has an advantage, guys. I mean, she really does. She can use both sides of her brain at the same time. Guys can only use one half of their brain at one time. That's it. Feminist psychologist Carol Gilligan, she wrote a a groundbreaking book, and it was called A Different Voice. And she did a tremendous amount of research, 
And she says this, for example, men see themselves as maturing as they separate. Women see themselves maturing as they attach. Men see themselves as maturing as they separate and become independent and make impact. Women see themselves as maturing as they attach themselves, they invite one another into their networks, and they become more interdependent. So man has this gift of independence. Women have a gift of interdependence. That's fascinating research, and we're going to come back to it and the ramifications of that in a few moments. But then there's this question. Who decides what a truly traditional, conservative, biblical point of view is? Who decides that? For example, when someone says the husband should work and the wife should stay home with the children, where does it say that in the Bible? Where does it say the woman shall cook and the man shall eat? When my wife and I got married, my wife did not know how to cook. In fact, every meal she served me was like a burnt offering right? And uh, true story. Uh, Now we both cook, and Tracy is a far more superior cook than I am. Cooking is not about gender. It's about who does it well, right? And can you talk them into doing the cooking? However, in some cultures today, only the women cook, and they still make it a gender thing. The point is, that's a cultural thing, not a Bible thing. Some say the man should be in charge of the checkbook. That's fine with me as long as he can add. (laughs) Who can add? Who's gifted? Who's better with numbers? Where does it say that in the Bible? The man shall do the checkbook. In a healthy marriage, both partners budget together, agree on the budget together, and they decide who's more gifted to do what part. Now, in the pre-industrial age... Husbands, I want you to think about this. I want you to get out of your own lifespan because a lot of you develop truth based on your lifespan. In the pre-industrial age, husbands did not go out to work for money while the wife stayed home with the kids. In the pre-industrial age, the husband and wife both worked and produced the goods together. So they actually worked together in whatever their family occupation was. So if they farmed together, they farmed together. If they were tailors together or they were shoemakers together, they both produced goods and they both raised the children. Then along came the industrial age. And that was the first, somebody, first time that somebody had to choose. Somebody had to decide who's going to go to the manufacturing plant. Who's going to go there to make that money? And during this period of time, the husband would leave, go to work, the wife would stay home, and if, if, if you had children and you were nursing, there were some very practical reasons back then. When you are studying the scriptures, you'll see that the Bible is truth, and it's written for all time and all space. The Bible doesn't get into labeling specific tasks and going, oh, that's a man's job, or oh, that's a woman's job. The Bible does not say anywhere who should go to work, who should cook, or who should do the checkbook. You're not going to find that in the Bible. In Proverbs chapter 31, it talks about a woman of great worth, uh, a wonderful wife, and she works selling real estate. Uh, She has an investment business. She even funded the importing and exporting of goods. She sews, and she raised her children. She was into everything, but not limited to one stereotype. And for all we can tell, the husband was into everything with her as well. 
So when you say the Bible is in support of the traditional family, I agree, but what is the traditional family? For example, the traditional family in 2500 BC is one thing. The traditional family between the 1700s and the 1800s is another. And then from which culture do you define the traditional family? The Asian, the European, Arkansas? Manteca? California? I mean, what era culture are you going to choose from? The Bible is truth to be applied in the context. So you're not going to find a list in the Bible that says, this is what it means to be a wife. Thou shalt cook, thou shalt sow, thou shalt mow. You're not going to find that in the Bible. Who a woman and a man is, is far more profound than the tasks they do. Number two, write this down. Why are there roles? Why are there differences between a wife and a husband? That's a better question than are there differences. There's obvious differences. And so the answer is found in the order of creation. When Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, he's drawing from a principle way back in Genesis. The Greek word head is just like our word authority. And you can write this in your notes, the word authority came from the word author. If I write a poem, I am the author of that poem. I have the authority to tell you what the poem means because I wrote it. God says, I have created you as a masterpiece, as a poem. I have created you with an order in mind. So therefore, I have the authority to tell you what that's supposed to look like. So the word authority, write this in your notes, also means source. God is the source, the authority of the order of life. When someone says, I have it on good authority, they're quoting a source. The secondary meaning of authority means power, influence, and sway. In the same way that the Greek word for head originally meant the source, Eve, Adam was created first, and then Eve was taken out of the side of Adam. The head is that which the body grows out from. From the head comes the brain and all the neurological system spreads out into the body. You can't understand the relationship between husband and wife in marriage unless you go back to creation in the beginning. So write this down. Adam was created to be the one who names. He named every living thing. That's what God told him to do. And then Eve was created to be the one who helps. Men and women were created to be different, to have different roles, but then sin corrupted their relationship. And God told Adam, he said this, your role is I want you to name all the animals. Now, we have to understand what that meant. To name someone or to name something in the Bible meant that you were shaping their character and their purpose. You had the authority to direct them. In the Old Testament, when one king would conquer another king, the victorious king would then give the, the, a new name to the defeated king because naming was the exercise of being superior to an inferior. Only someone who is greater has the power and authority to name someone else. For example, parents, you name your children. And in the Bible, when they would name their children, oftentimes they would wait like, here in America, we, we tend to always name them right away. 
In ancient times, they would, they would sometimes wait a period of time. Uh, they, would, they would come to grasp who this child might be. W- what is it that God has for this child? What are the characteristics of this child? And then they would name their child. And when you call someone, think about this. When you call someone a name every single day, you're speaking that over them. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, the words that you're speaking. So when you call someone a name... You're speaking out, and you're shaping their life. When Tracy and I uh, prayed for our sons many, many years ago, we felt God gave us their names. Samuel, our oldest son, Samuel means to be heard of God. God hears his prayers. Isaac means laughter. When God changes someone's nature in the Bible, when he changed their name, for example, Abram, to Abraham, or Sarai to Sarah, and so on, when God said to Adam, I want you to name the animals, he's saying, I'm giving you an authority that I have, and I'm giving it to you to bring order into the wild of all these creatures. You're going to name them to bring order. I want you to have impact, Adam. I want you to shape them, to identify them. I want you to have dominion. I want you to take over. I want you to be in charge of them. That's what he created Adam to do. What did he create Eve to do? God created Eve to be a helper. Now, our English word helper is a bad way to translate this Hebrew word. And it's caused a lot of damage, frankly, and a lot of misunderstanding. Because a lot of times, depending on who you are, when you think of the word helper, you usually, we think of of weakness. We think of, oh, you're the helper. You're, You're not the expert you're the helper. You, Hey, you help me. You hand me this while I do this because I'm the expert. The helper is like an apprentice. The helper is less qualified. Uh, they don't know what to do. Uh, they just help you. That's what we think of when we hear the word helper. That is not what the Bible means in the Hebrew when we, when we use the English word helper. The word help in the original language, is extremely sophisticated term. First of all, let me say this. God is called our helper. God. Throughout the Bible, God is called our help, our strength, and our refuge in time of trouble. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. When God created Eve to be Adam's helper, here's what it means. A helper is someone who has the power and the resources that the person needing the help does not have. (laughs) When God called Eve the helper, it was not to say that you have a lesser role. It meant the opposite. It means, Adam, you were deficient. In other words, you were inadequate by yourself. It's not good for you to be alone. I mean, guys get weird when they're alone. It's just not good. (laughs) Eve has been given the power and the resources that Adam does not have. You can't help somebody unless you have something they do not. Helping, then, is to put your strength under someone else's. It's to support them, work with them, enable them, empower them. In basketball, you have the power to assist. You can shoot the basketball, 
or for the sake of the team, you can choose to help and give the assistance that's needed. Women have resources that men do not have. Eve is a gift. She provides a way of using her power that enables and empowers her husband, Adam. She gives him a greater nobility because she can. Now, a wife, listen closely, a wife who minimizes her husband, a wife who takes away from her husband's value, a wife who disrespects her husband is not better or more superior. She's insecure. She's misusing her resources and her gifts. She's competing and she's comparing and she's challenging and devaluing her husband. Paul says, wives, submit, support, and respect your husband. In other words, help him. He needs it, right? I created you to be who you are. You cannot have two heads and no body. That would be weird. Now, remember the research of the feminist psychologist, Carol Gilligan. Uh, She wrote about men see themselves maturing as they separate. They have the gift of independence, and they want to have impact. Women have the gift of interdependence. They see themselves maturing as they attach. They want to network. They want to be interdependent, and they want to shape or influence people in that way. Men in general look to be completed by subduing their world through their work. Women look to be completed by receiving and becoming part of an interdependent network. Now, here's what I want to ask you. If the person who has the gift of independence, the gift of separation, the gift of moving out without a team and just doing it and getting her done, and over here you have a person who has a gift of consensus building, moving people together, moving people into a team, Which of those approaches always works? Which of those things is always the wise thing to do? The answer is both. When we talk about the woman using her gifts to help, does that mean that men are never supposed to help or nurture or network or build consensus in teams? Of course not. When we talk about the desire for men to to make an impact, does that mean that women are never supposed to achieve or conquer or run a large business? Of course not. No, what makes you male or female is not what you do, but why you do it. Men tend to nurture in order to have impact. Women tend to achieve in order to nurture. It's fundamentally who we are. It's deep within us. It's part of what it means to be a male and a female. It does not mean that women don't name animals. My wife named one of our dogs. It doesn't mean that men aren't supposed to help their wives but, it, but, it do, but what it does mean is we're motivated differently. Can anybody remember uh, we were talking about teaching on spiritual gifts? The Bible says, for example, that some people have a gift of evangelism, and that means that they're especially good at that. But every Christian is supposed to be a witness to others about Christ and the gospel. When we talk about women having gifts and the power uh, that enables, when we talk about her gift of interdependence and the man having the gift of independence, we do not mean that the woman is never supposed to be independent or that the man is never supposed to be interdependent. We're talking about things that you're especially good at. Why else does the Bible say when a a husband and wife come together, they complete each other? Why is that? Because there's differences. It's because you do bring different strengths 
to the table. And then together you reproduce. The truth is, there's a dark side in any gift. Any gift left unchecked becomes imbalanced. We all need someone around us who says, hey, wait a minute. I can't tell you how many times my wife says, wait a minute, honey, wait a minute. And then she gives me another perspective. And it's always just the right thing that I need to hear. The first basic truth is this. Men and women are obviously created differently. The second basic truth is this. Their relationship is corrupted by sin. We have no idea how much that impacts us on a regular basis. We now struggle, all of us, in our roles. We are confused about all of this. God says to Adam, you're now cursed. And he says to Adam specifically, you will sweat and work in the dust of the ground and the thorns and the thistles will come up. Then he turns to Eve and he says, you're cursed in this way. You will have pain in childbearing. Do I hear an amen? And then he goes on, he says, and your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. If you want confirmation of the fundamental difference between husbands and wives, between men and women, here it is. When God curses Adam, he curses his work. And he says this, your, follow me, your need to achieve in the world as a man, your need to be independent is going to become your idol. And it's going to become too important to you. And you will always be frustrated because it will never give you what you want. Your struggle as a man will be for your life purpose. When God curses Eve, he says, you will want your husband desperately, but your husband will rule over you. She will become a dependent person. She will want to be taken care of. Even the strongest woman will still deep inside want someone to turn to, someone to lean to. And the man with his gift of independence will now become a tyrant. He will always want to rule over the woman. History proves this. This is a big subject in America right now. This is men in sin, out of control, wanting to rule over. History proves this. The battle of the sexes is because of the corruption of sin. Now, if you're married, you know this conflict. You know the tug of war. The woman, on one hand, wants to be cherished and cared for and nurtured, but she also wants to contribute at the highest level in meaningful ways. So when her husband is either not providing or domineering to her or demeaning towards her worth, she resents him. She does not respect him. If the wife does not respect her husband's efforts, if she refuses to help him and basically withholds her God-given ability to help him succeed, he doesn't love his wife. He doesn't love her because he doesn't, she doesn't respect him. He doesn't feel the respect, so he resents her. And that's why God says to the husbands, I want you to love your wives. And God says to the wives, I want you to respect your husbands. And when a husband knows instinctively that she has resources that he does not have, and she only wants to use them for her own agenda, the Bible teaches that men will tend to oppress women. Women will tend to want men, on the other hand, to take care of them. And this is where you find stereotypes in all extremes, where, you know, where a wife doesn't ever put gas in her car, and the man couldn't cook an egg if his life depended on it. 
extremes, out of control. The Bible knows that the sins of men and women will tend to feed on one another. And there's this tug of war, and there's this result of sin. There's a reason why you have to work so hard to have a great marriage. The Bible teaches us that women and men in marriage are to learn to support or submit to one another. Did you know that? Yes, you're both to submit to one another. You are both to prefer one another. You are both to love one another. You are both to respect one another. In marriage, the wife is to help. She, she helps bring the balance that her man needs. She encourages him. A wife will say things like this to her man. Honey, you're just making life all about work. You're isolating. You need to be with other men. You really need to be with other men. You do not want a man home all day. You need to be more interdependent. You need to get out. You need to be with other men. Men need to learn how to be more interdependent. Women are naturally better at connecting. In the same way, the wife will have a tendency to move towards becoming too dependent on the man. And so the man will encourage her. I'll, I'll show you, honey. You can put gas in your gas tank. I'll show you how to do this. It's okay to be more an independent woman. Now, the Bible does not support the old Victorian age approach that, you know, women are to be owned by their husbands. But on the other hand, we forget the fact that there is a distinction between being a man and a woman. Number three, what are the roles? Marriage is friendship, but it's also more than friendship. You see, the mystery of marriage is, is this, this, is that other person, that other person is utterly unlike you. They're utterly different. They think differently. They operate differently. And in some cases, that becomes frustrating to us. In some cases, it becomes scary. Sometimes it's downright incomprehensible. I'll never forget my first year of marriage. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> what? I mean, I was so confused by the end of that year. <laughs> On the other hand, at, at a much deeper level, the person is helping me find out who I really am. And there's a mystery to the otherness of gender. Traditionalists have distorted this view of headship and submission, saying things like, well, the wife is the submitter and the husband is the head, meaning the husband gets gets his way every time, and makes all the decisions in the family. That's called a dictatorship. That's not a friendship, and that's not a relationship. And, and, and even if you decide you're going to be the benevolent dictator, that's not a healthy relationship. In any good friendship, iron sharpens iron, and you have healthy debates. You have full-length conversations as adults without storming out and throwing fits and you know, taking your Tonka toy and going home. You have contention, but you have to learn to work all the way through to consensus. You have to mature. In a loving, Christ-honoring marriage where a husband loves his wife as Christ died for the church, a man would never have the right to use his authority to simply please himself. So what happens when you can't agree? What do you do then? I mean, you cannot agree. You know, we can't agree. Are we going to put the kids in, where are we going to put them in school? Is it going to be public or private? We've talked about it all the way through. We have talked and we have talked and we've done our research and everything we've done, and we cannot 
agree. How do you break the tie? After much prayer, after a lot of healthy dialogue, the Bible's answer is, on that one, on rare occasion, let the husband break the tie. Now follow me. The Bible teaches that when you let the husband break the tie, initiate, and when the wife defers after healthy prayer and dialogue, after you're both getting in touch with something so deep inside of you, and you're getting in touch with who God made you to be, it will not necessarily fit with your feelings, but you will find it actually fits with the reality of who you are. Now, in my marriage, and Tracy and I, I, I don't know when, when we've ever reached an impasse where I had to break a tie. And if there ever was such a thing, it had to be when I was young in the marriage where I thought I had to break the tie, right? In a healthy relationship, you work together. There's a balance of godly wisdom. Did you know that the Bible encourages you to seek out godly wisdom when you reach an impasse in your relationship? That when you're just going in circles, you need to find a godly person outside of your circle to speak into your circle. Husbands and wives do not have all the answers within themselves. There's just tons of stuff that your husband doesn't know. Men, there's just tons of stuff you don't know. That's why you hire an expert. That's why you go in all areas of life, you know intuitively as a man, I need to get help on this. I don't know how to do this. And a wife, I don't know how to do this. I need to get help on this. Why would you ever come to the most important decision where you've reached an impasse and then not seek counsel or help? You need one another and you need other people in your life to help you. Now, when you reach an impasse in a decision as a married couple, In that moment, you're both learning how to trust God at a much deeper level. It's not just that you're going to make a decision, it's you're learning something so deep. You see, the godly husband doesn't want to miss God. And the wife is trusting in God that he won't. When a wife says with all sincerity, I will support you no matter what, And I won't say I told you so no matter what happens. She is a woman who is keeping her strength and her dignity and her power. And she's choosing to support and help and empower and enable her man. This empowers the man to find out who he really is. Now, I know this topic raises a lot of issues and questions. But our time is up. (laughs) Uh, All right. I'm out. No, okay. No. So seriously, though, after next Sunday, after Mother's Day, we're going to come back to this topic. I want to say this to to those of you that are single. If you're single, you may be wondering, well, where does this leave me? If, If God doesn't want you married right now, it just won't happen. Fight, squeal, do everything you want. It just won't, it just won't happen. Okay. But I want to say this to single men. Jesus is your helper. And I want to say to the women, Jesus is your head, God is your helper, and God is your provider. And if you're being called into marriage, stop being scared of it. If you're not being called into marriage, stop wanting it so badly. It's making us all feel weird. Okay? So we're going to finish up with uh, in the next two weeks on this, but I, w- I want to close by asking everyone one question. If God were to have his way in your marriage, 
If God were to have his way in your dating life, if God were to have his way in your future relationship, what would that look like? And I want to leave you with that to think about and pray about. Would you bow your heads with me if you wouldn't mind and just close your eyes just in reverence to those that are around you? You know, first things first, every one of us, our deepest need is a spiritual need. Our deepest need. Our deepest need is not another relationship with another human being. Our deepest need is a relationship with our Creator. And so this morning, I'm not going to have you stand. I'm not going to have you come forward. But if there's something in your heart this day that says, I would like to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'd like to begin to follow him. I'd like to receive forgiveness of my sins and become a Christ follower. I don't have all the answers, but I just know in my heart of hearts that that's something that I want to begin this journey today. Right where you're sitting, without standing, without coming forward, right where you're at, just raise your hand and say, yeah, that's me. I want to do that. Go ahead. Just respond to him. That's great. Hands all over the room. That's wonderful. That's fantastic. I'm going to pray for all of you that raised your hands right now. You can put your hands down. And I'm going to pray this prayer. And you can make this prayer your own prayer. Dear God, I just recognize I need you. I'm humbling myself before you. I have so many questions on so many things. But, but I have a sense that you have answers, that I can trust you, that I can give you my life. I ask you to forgive me of all of my sins. I ask you to come into my heart and life. I I choose today to lay down my strength. I choose to submit to you and who you are as my God and my creator. And I choose today to begin to follow you for the rest of my life. And Father, I pray for all of our church family. I pray whether single in a season of singleness right now, whether in a marriage that's just rocking with difficulty and challenges and strife and contention or whatever or, or whatever or just a marriage that needs to be a little bit fine-tuned a little bit more aware God I just pray that you would help men and women to let go of the pride to defer to one another to love one another and to humble themselves in Jesus name amen